Welcome to Resonant Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Will Lynch, and I'm the associate editor of Resonant Advisor. Our guest today is Alec Empire, a Berlin artist who mixes music and politics far more forcefully than most of his peers. He's been a DJ and producer since the early 90s, but turned his back on club culture long ago, seeking something more radical and socially conscious. On his own and with his band, Atari Teenage Riot, Empire created what he calls digital hardcore, a breaky, punk-inspired sound that perfectly complemented his politics and earned him a decades-long cult following. A longtime modular synth enthusiast, last summer he interviewed Morton Sabotnik at the Berlin premiere of the documentary I Dream of Wires. The next morning, he stopped by our office in Berlin to talk about synths, socialist raving, and his own singular career. You can hear our full archive of exchanges at resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The Exchange with Alec Empire, up next. interviewed you for the screening of the documentary is that right no like they interviewed me for the documentary because i was i don't know they're like very early on like very interested in in modular sense you know i was i was doing digital hardcore and 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 acid and techno like in the 90s there was that point uh, you know 2000 something like that when everybody switched to like ableton and it became like the studio in the laptop and I just didn't get that physical energy from those sounds. Um, I mean, I understood that it, it you know, it had to, it had to be a sacrifice uh, 
to develop that new software and stuff. So, but I knew also it would take, you know, over a decade until it got to the point like where you can stand in a club and, you know, listen to something like that and, you know, just have that same physical uh, body response that we used to get from analog, you know, drum machines uh, and, and synthesizers. So I was really not satisfied with where technology was at that stage. So I began to just explore, um, you know, that very new modular scene, which I think started, you know, for most of us, it was like 2003, maybe 2004, like you could get these modules like built by very DIY uh, underground kind of manufacturers, you know, often like one guy, maybe two guys in a garage or at, at home making this stuff in very limited quantities. So yeah, it, it, it was just really exciting. It, it immediately felt like, okay, this is something, even though it's not purely digital, now it, it, it's not really digital versus analog kind of thing. I think a lot of people make it out to be, but I don't think that's completely right because there are a lot of modules with that use also digital uh, you know, technology. But the thing is this, I compared it a bit to like the, the whole open source movement. You know, it's like you could create your own synthesizer basically. And therefore you could get a very uh, unique sound where I, I always saw the danger with uh, software you know even though you know you could say with a variety of plugins and stuff you have a lot of choice but I always felt the moment it gets it comes out of the box it has a very uh, conformist kind of sound you know and I think now if you scroll through I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of tracks, maybe on Beatport or, or platforms like that, you kind of understand, I guess, what I mean. You know, it's like a lot of stuff sounds very much the same. Now, we could say this was always a bit the problem of dance music, right? That you you, you have just stuff that it sounds similar and it works in clubs and, and so on. But I really felt there was something new that started. And yeah, and I was, uh, you know, very early on like mentioning that in all interviews that I think that's where the future is and people paid attention they were like what that that was that guy who only used samplers and maybe analog distortion uh, a decade earlier you know so I think that's also why they thought okay let's interview Alec let's see what he has to say so and I really like the project because I hope people also who are not musicians that they can um, they can understand more how that music is made because we know there's like that you know it's almost like the, the DJ or the, the electronic music producer who play maybe plays a live show or something in a club or a festival it, it's almost like the modern kind of magician you know like you just don't know what's going on who does what and then there's all these DJs who maybe just press a start button wouldn't do anything so I think it's it's really important to not just you know get mad about you know whatever all those kind of DJs who don't do anything <laughs> which is of course like the 
you know, it goes viral really quickly because you see, I don't know, David Gatter's CD is skipping or stuff like that, and it, it's it's a joke. But the problem is that I think this stuff does create a damage. A lot of music fans go, okay, am I being fooled? Like, what is really happening? So I think by making a documentary like this, people see, wow, there's a long history, you know? <laughs> Electronic music just doesn't start, I don't know, in the 80s or something like that. Because I think that's where what a lot of people think. They maybe go back to Kraftwerk or something like that and go, okay, this is... But then the stuff from Kraftwerk they know is probably like from 79 or 1980, you know what I mean? So, And they forget that there was so much... Uh, innovation and and yeah just so much important stuff happening like way earlier on you know with without those people like Martin Subotnik for example we wouldn't be here now and I think a composer like him he really deserves the credit but it's also people who make make the instruments you know I think that's something that's often overlooked like without those creators like he you wouldn't have the tools, you know, like it's it's just really important that you have creative minds on, on that side, you know, often when corporations, I don't know, make synthesizers, like big, I don't know, companies, you know, like they, it's very rarely they, they come up with something that's unique and special, you know, they always try to market to the mainstream keyboard player, whatever, audience, um, so you really need those outsiders and those, yeah, those freaks <laughs> doing stuff that nobody else would think of, you know. So modular synthesis is a way of ensuring some level of individuality in your music. Yes, I, I think that's, that's one thing. Because I think that should be the goal, right? I mean, what we don't need is thousands and thousands of musicians who sound the same you know i've i like the music scene to be diverse i mean i know a lot of people from the music industry would probably disagree with me on this but this is like my own taste i think the only way out of this crisis also you know because the music industry is in a crisis in uh, such a long time this can't be that we we become conservative and we repeat old formulas over and over again. Because at the moment, the music industry, they always hope that a younger generation doesn't know like the past. They, they don't remember like how could they, you know. But the thing is, there is something like evolution, <laughs> you know, so happening. So even though you might not know you know, stuff that was 20, 30, 40 years old. I really believe in, in that, that you you catch up like really fast. It's We see the same in video games and also films, you know, the way films are edited. It, there is progression and a lot of conservative voices in the music industry, they try to sell us this idea. It's all a cycle. This is what people like. You know, it will never be different, <laughs> you know. And the funny thing is, I heard those arguments like, yeah, when I 
started making underground techno in like 89, you know, 1990. There were these major record label people who was like, nobody will listen to that music. Like, why should this be big? It's like, yeah, there's huge raves going on. So I know it doesn't make sense to you, but at some point music is evolving and people want something that is unpredictable, you know. And I think a lot of people over the past decade have tried to stick to like a formula that they just can rely on. And I think, again, the, especially in, in software development, like people, of course, follow also that trend. You know, if you look at DJ software, for example, it's all about like making it really easy and, you know, reaching as many people as possible. Of course, you know, it makes kind of sense. But what we're losing I think is yeah those you know those really special sounding records that drive the whole thing into the future you know and modular uh, synthesizers I think they open the door you know it's just because just the way your mind works like when you make those connections is just really different there's a really important scene in the documentary where they speak about You know, when Robert Moog, like when he developed the, the Mini Moog uh, synthesizer, before that there weren't really keyboards, uh, like keys like the piano, you know, attached to those uh, synthesizers. Um, and it was a, a big deal. They were like, hmm, you know, like, aren't we falling back to like this old, you know, like way of thinking? Because if if you have these these keys in front of you, you you approach a synthesizer more like a piano, you know? And I think what we've seen is, you know, the result of that was in the 80s, especially like when you would look at a synth band, it would be maybe this horrible pop band where people try to mimic, you know, traditional instruments. You know, it's like, oh, I can't get a brass section. Let's choose like a, a brass sounding like sound or something. And then you get this stuff we kind of laugh about now on YouTube, <laughs> people, you know, I mean, and it took a while, I think, for people to think outside the box again and, and go like, okay, like Acid House, Detroit Techno, you know, these kind of things. I think they, it wasn't like pianists who used a synthesizer to do, you know, like to just come up with a slightly different sound. It was just a different way of thinking. And I think the instruments can... Yeah, they can almost force you to rethink, you know, like because we all kind of grow up like with you learn an instrument maybe in school or wherever and immediately you, yeah, you, you just think in that direction. And sometimes technology can help you like break through those uh, limits, you know, that in, in the end just exist in your mind, you know, <laughs> but they do exist, you know. It's almost like when DJs immediately... They always think, still, I think, almost like two or four turntables, you know? I mean, a lot of people still have that, even though they use a laptop or whatever. It's just how their mind works. Still decks <laughs> on the interface. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think that's kind of interesting because if you're now, let's say, 16 years old, why does it have to be like that? You know what I mean? So... There's probably some changes coming uh, in that era too. Like, where, I mean, the, the thing is, you, you wonder 
where will the line really blur like between for example a dj who's just playing these tracks and maybe he's doing a mix like the end of the day getting tracks in sync and then you know whatever maybe firing off some samples on top of something but a lot a lot of djs don't even do that you know so hopefully we will have djs which are like more on the side of the musicians and create stuff as they go along and i mean really create stuff you know like not just go okay i i leave the record at this point this other dj leaves it a minute earlier or something you know that's not that creative you know so in general it sounds like you think um djing as an art form could be a lot more fundamentally creative than it often is now Yes, I mean, if we go back to the roots of DJing, maybe Africa Bambada is a good example because people know his mixes now, but these people were far more creative than most DJs that we see now. And the strength, like, or like the advantage a DJ has is they can make these connections that normal musicians often don't make. You know, so by going, okay, I'm going to take that bar of like this funk record and then I'm going to add this bass line from that record and stuff. There is, um, they, they just think different. While a normal musician would maybe go, okay, my friend or whatever, uh, he played this beat and I'm going to add this bass line. But they haven't been created in isolation. You know what I mean? And, and there is something about that, making those new connections. That's also my criticism of the uh, the whole like the the, the, the copyright uh, wars in a way you know like with the I mean there was that point I think uh, maybe around two thousand something like that where publishing companies and record labels really went after artists who sampled others. I mean it was kind of like a gray area before it was like a lot of these records were made for the underground. You know, if hip-hop artists sampled a loop and it became a top 10 hit or something, of course you need to work something out and, and you know, pay the, the original creators a share. But I have the feeling a lot of, because there was so much legal um, stuff about it and you had to clear all these samples and stuff, a lot of people just went to, mm, I don't know, like, I'd rather stay off that stuff and I'm not going to, this is just too much of a pain. And I think at that point um, we saw, like, people just very often looking back to the, to the past and going, okay, I'm just going to, I don't know, look at Detroit techno or whatever and I'm going to try to copy that. I think it's also interesting how shortly after minimal became so big because it's almost it leaves out all those elements you know it's almost like unconsciously people were like okay uh, uh, okay what's left uh, okay i'm gonna stick to this very <laughs> kind of it's almost like it, it lives from the emptiness you know what i mean <laughs> which is was also interesting at the time but you could really see that this was a, a, a the total opposite of let's say early uh, hardcore breakbeat records or something especially from the uk at the time which we just they had like i don't know 30 40 copyright violations <laughs> on each track you know what i mean so but this was also very strange music when you look back on it like the 
the way uh, everything was pitched and because the sampling technology wasn't that advanced you know like so you people had to cut up everything and it's it's like this weird collage music at the time it sounded like the future but looking back now it was like this weird almost mistake you know the evolution of electronic music but that's why it's so interesting and fascinating and i think it's really important that musicians work together with djs and those who make the tools you know and and i've i've hoped that the modular synths uh, would influence more you know the, the, the software developers i i could really see that this is will be happening you know yeah from the way you talk about it it sounds like you see there's being these kind of two forces. There's a force kind of homogenizing music, whether it's record labels, the way the software works, things like that. And then there's this kind of counterforce of people trying to consciously you know, work against that. Would you say that's right? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, in a way that was probably always the case. You know, there's... Once something becomes so accepted, it also becomes kind of boring, you know, and so you see small group usually finds it boring first <laughs> and then they go, we, this is just boring. Let's make something better. Let's make something that just feels more alive and more fresh or whatever. So I think there is one thing about the Internet it is really great that those kinds of people can connect now uh, globally. And it, I think those changes m could potentially happen much faster. But also there's something else. It's that kind of mob mentality that almost like wants to crush those, those people. You know, because if we're honest, and I think that's also what the documentary shows, I think a lot of these musicians or manufacturers of, of these th synthesizers, they... They have kind of different kinds of people. Like they, they are introverted. They live in their own little world and and create and and that's very different from the DJ superstars we see in EDM, for example. <laughs> you know, like that. This is like I don't know. Like they're almost worse than any any rock star behavior. You know, like <laughs> I mean, if you would look at I don't know, like. Uh, hair metal bands you know they were at least really skilled like <laughs> <laughs> i mean i hated that music but the thing was there's some wicked solos yeah i mean you know i i never thought um when acid house started because at the time we we really thought of electronic music as okay we're going against everything that was really bad in the 80s and there was that horrible corporate rock and, and even pop music, you know. If you really look at the amounts of, of songs that were in, in the charts, it is not like just the cool, like, okay, there was Depeche Mode and there was this and that. There was like, for every uh, hit like that, that was kind of good, you had like, I don't know, 60 of the worst of like constructed kind of songs you know because and that was also because of electronic of, of electronic music in a way like you could just get some idiot into the studio or have the producer do the rest and you know and so there was also something 
yeah, almost evil <laughs> that started that tries to eliminate like the uh, or get rid of the artist, you know. And I think we see, I mean, in 2015 now, it seems this is still the same conflict. You know, you have DJs playing underground clubs who are really mad about the EDM stars. Like, yeah, you know, they don't do anything. What is going on? Like, how can so many people stand there, applaud? And I really liked um, when Jeff Mills, I think, said it in an interview last year when he said, like, it seems to him like there are less and less people actually dancing. And it, I witnessed that too at, like for example Coachella or events like that there is that trend where people just stand there like face the DJ like look at the DJ and I'm like this wasn't the idea you know but I think this is what happens when you yeah when you use those kind of settings that that came from rock music you know it's I mean the idea should be the original techno philosophy was that the DJ is part of the crowd is almost not really visible almost you know and the DJ is uh, absorbing the energy of the crowd and then also picks the the music and feeds it back into the crowd and there's that constant interaction and I can't see that at all at EDM events you know where it's a very top-down <laughs> thing it's like DJs have their set prepared in advance you know and there's very little interaction with the crowd I mean the only thing is maybe like, okay clap your hands and there's some some you know stuff like that which is that's not real interaction it's almost uh, uh, yeah it's, it's is that cultural fascism already like i don't know it's it sometimes looks like it you know like okay i do this you all follow and you repeat you know like anyone who experienced a, a real like rave if that's the right word for it where those barriers are broken down understands how exciting the real thing is and how you know there's such euphoria and it can be the best music experience ever that you can have. And it's like, it almost feels like, okay, freedom, you know, is possible, <laughs> something like that. And I think that's also why so many people, um, when you see documentaries or something, or speak to people uh, who were there in the beginning, they, they, they almost talk about like it's a spiritual, religious experience or something. And I understand why that is. I mean, I never took drugs or anything, so, I was always a bit like distanced uh, from like, you know, like losing myself completely in, in, in the big crowds. But I understand what they're talking about. And this is why EDM and all that commercial stuff is in a big danger of like a, being a, becoming a bubble that we burst. If you look at America, it's almost like they repeated the mistakes the Europeans made in the 90s. <laughs> but because of the internet, everything stupid is being amplified so much. It's almost like a verse copy <laughs> of what happened in the 90s. And it's, it's just strange. Like, does electronic music and dance music always has to go down that path to then maybe being built back up again from scratch or something? I don't know. It's an interesting thing at least. For pretty much your whole career, music and politics have been very 
closely tied, could hardly be more enmeshed, I guess. You know, a lot of people talk about how the rave experience has spiritual value. You just kind of touched on it, but when you first encountered raves in Berlin in the early 90s, did you find they had a political dimension? Yeah, of course it did. I mean, I went to raves in, I mean, of course in Berlin, that's where I grew up. Um, I was born in West Berlin, you know, so when Acid House happened, this was more like in club environments. This was before the wall came down. When the wall came down, there was all that space. So the first, you know, big raves with like, I don't know, 5,000 people or something uh, happened, 8,000 or something like that in warehouses. But I also witnessed stuff in the UK. And for example, Spiral Tribe is a really good example um, here because it became also a political thing because the authorities, the police wanted to really to, to crack down on, on, on this stuff. And what's really interesting is at the time, because a lot of people took ecstasy and, and other stuff, but they didn't really consume like beer or drinks like that. So the, the brewing companies, they hated that. You know, they almost saw like, okay, if that's the future, there's no place for us anymore. So there was also that corporate interest to apply changes. Stamp it out. <laughs> yes. And a lot of people don't see that so much. And I think what is interesting, the early love parades in Berlin, you know, they kind of came from the Christopher Street Day and from the gay scene and where a lot of the house and techno stuff happened first. You know, I think that's often not being credited enough. You know, like people think, okay, suddenly some Detroit musicians came to Berlin and then this whole thing and happened. And then also in the UK, there was something at the same time that, <laughs> that became big. <clears throat> I think the gay scene was so uh, experimental and really exciting at the time. It's like, these were spaces like where this stuff just happened. It's really strange because I couldn't see this music in like the normal like mainstream clubs where they just play top 40 music. So again, that immediately became a political thing. I mean, like the first love parades, it was almost like a, a, a message we're here, we're different, but you need to accept us, you know, and it's, it's still relevant today, you know, and I've, it's almost hard to believe, like, why is there all this hostility, you know, I don't know, Russia or like places like that. Uh, I mean, we have it in, in all countries, I guess, but in the beginning, I think there was this idealism and it had a political dimension. And then when that got like, yeah, beaten down almost, became a political thing. And also, I think in the beginning, for example, people like Spiral Tribe, they tried these alternative, like, lifestyles, you know, was was very influenced also by the kind of hippie movement, you know, from the late 60s or something. But that merged with, like, technology. And so when you look at old film or like photos of those types of raves for example that happened at Potsdamer Platz you know in Berlin where now there's the Sony Center and it's all you can't imagine that this was a wasteland <laughs> and there were raves you know and it was almost like the Mad Max movie you know like all these trucks everybody also looked kind of like that you know like the 
it was almost like steampunk, but it wasn't steampunk. It was just people had these types of clothes, you know, like brands weren't really important at the time. And yeah, it was a mix of cyberpunk, hippie culture, and and yeah, and also punk. You know, like the, the a lot of the early producers or DJs came from punk, I think. Yeah, so th there was that conscious, like it, the system can turn against you so be careful you know like <laughs> but it also of course had to do with the past uh, of berlin you know i think that's why berlin was kind of like an exception from what was going on everywhere else in the world because you had socialism uh, ending you know it, it exactly at that time like the wall came down suddenly uh, a lot of young people saw uh, new possibilities and they really understood how it felt like living under surveillance like like all these topics i mean they are relevant again now you know but people just came out of a system that was so oppressive and thought okay now these countries kind of united again but a lot of people hoped something new would come from that you know of course then the west took over and stuff <laughs> but the There was that spirit, I think, and that influenced the early race, you know, where people just had this enthusiasm and they had hopes and also they involved themselves, you know, like I think that was really great. Like it was very open. It wasn't defined like this is you do the visuals, you are the DJ, you know, it's these rules didn't exist. Like it, it was just a big experiment. You know, and I think it's always good to remind ourselves of that uh, because it could help us um, in the future. Am I right in thinking you eventually became disillusioned with rave culture? Mm. Yeah, like very early on, I think it was in 92. <laughs> no, because of course, like I was so uh, enthusiastic and, you know, I. If you would speak to me in like, let's say 1991, I would tell you, okay, we, we artists shouldn't be individuals and they should all be anonymous and records shouldn't even have titles and, you know, it should all be just music and, and there's no hierarchy uh, between the crowd and the, the artists and stuff. There was one problem that I felt we needed to solve. Like, I mean, it was the racism in Germany got to a point at the time you just couldn't ignore it anymore. I mean, there were these attacks on uh, asylum seekers. On, I mean, the neo-Nazi scene was really on the rise. It, it's, you know, and the, the dance music scene, they weren't prepared for that. You know, it's like, I think at the time we all thought, of course, like things are going to get better now. Like let's make, let's create a better world. But then there was this part of society where people didn't agree with that at all. <laughs> And we wanted a, um, a more connected world. You know, it was almost like, you know, the internet was a result of that time where people just felt like we want a network. We There are people in Chicago doing stuff or in, in, in Japan. And, you know, it's like, okay, let's send faxes around. And, you know, it was that kind of time. It just really felt like that we need tools to connect better. But then you have these other groups in society who want to, uh, you know, kill millions of people, basically. 
and they would shout, I don't know, Zikaya again. And, and I don't know. It, it was just a, a big shock. And when the violence got too much, I realized, okay, we don't have the weapons to fight it. Because I have to say, um, when I was uh, still in school and stuff, like there were problems with neo-Nazis in the 80s. It wasn't as radical. They weren't as militant. But in the 90s, it started. You know, they got weapons and all this stuff. It got to a point where it was getting really dangerous. And I was really tired of, you know, if you would get into some fight in the streets, you know, it, a cycle of violence that, yeah, sometimes, I don't know, you get punched in the face, maybe you punch back, you know, but the problem never gets solved. So I thought, okay, I, we have to create music that encourages people to yeah to fight that and to to argue against that it has to start in the mind you know like we have to reach people and give them the um, the energy to make changes happen you know because at that time the rave culture was very much about escaping everything I felt it was like okay, it's you know, and you see it even when you look at old like flyer designs, for example, it switched from you know like more like a sort of industrial kind of eighties you know like black and white photocopied whatever like you know kind of design to the kind of Alice in Wonderland <laughs> fantasy you know it's almost like you go to Disneyland or something you know so that's when I was saying okay we need to make music that is fighting that uh, fascist ideology because with the reunification of Germany came that nationalism that I didn't grow up with um, and I didn't understand why people thought this was this was important at all. You know, it didn't make any sense to me. And this is when I uh, switched to making a lot of like breakbeat records and 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 this is also when a teenage riot started you know and it, it kind of started with uh, force ink music which was a techno label at the time in frankfurt the mere plateau uh, label came from that and we said okay let's you know dance tracks like for djs other people can do that what we need to do is now we need to yeah experiment with those things and i mean the first track that got attention was that hunt down the nazis track which caused also a lot of debates in the in the scene back in the day because a lot of djs said no we need to keep politics off the dance floor and i said mm, yeah i kind of understand it but we also see neo-nazis coming to those raves you know it's like <laughs> sorry you can't have people i don't know like shouting Zeke Heil or beating people up like you need to make a statement you know it's, so this is kind of like where all this came from so you know the idea of having a track hunt down the Nazis it's not just the topic of the song it's actually a um, political gesture to make it clear that Nazis aren't welcome yeah. at this event basically yeah I think also at the time I mean when I speak to hackers uh, now in Germany, the Chaos Computer Club, for example, there is a long tradition of 
being anti-fascist. Like, you know, if you speak to American hackers, they often are not even political. They just are interested in, you know, those technologies and the challenges. And, but over here, I think, um, I mean, the, the politics are really connected to all that stuff because of the history, you know, I, I think. And also because you have these people, you know, I, when like last year, Pegida, you know, became so, uh, um, um, yeah, like almost dominant, right, in the media, a lot of people asked me, like, how could this happen? This came from nowhere. I was like, no, this is a threat that's always there. <laughs> And it's almost like as soon Germany is good, like in football or in the World Cup, suddenly you have these people, like, they feel really proud. And, uh, and it's something I think we need to care about all the time, you know, not just when it escalates. And I think also... My personal opinion about dance music is this is always when it was great. I mean, sometimes like the early house records, they had that, you know, like that spirit. I mean, there was maybe like a Martin Luther King sample or stuff like that. At a big rave, you felt that it was such a unifying kind of thing. You were like, okay, there are all these different types of people. Because at the time, it wasn't really like... A subculture where it was like these were the ravers or something you know it just it just brought together all kinds of different people and i think this is where music becomes powerful and also very uh, very good you know i mean these old records still carry something <laughs> that a lot of new stuff lacks and i'm not really saying that just because you know i was there back then and everything was better i don't really think that but there is something about it. when people do something and they uh it means something <laughs> in the context, then it's also exciting, you know? It's, that's for every genre of music, you know, from, I don't know, Nina Simone to uh, the civil rights movement and, and soul and funk at the time, punk rock, hip hop, you know, like every genre almost becomes very exciting when things matter, you know? just adds this extra thing so as a music fan i also like this you know like i just don't want the political stamp on everything i just it can also be maybe a love song or something but most of the times love songs are just you know it's so fake <laughs> and i'm going why do you have to sell out that that topic in this bad way just to not offend anybody you know what i mean it's like but there's a point where it just doesn't mean anything anymore you know Yeah, I read something where you said that a lot of music you've made has been dedicated to fighting racism, like whether it's overt or implicit or whatever. And as you said, Atari Teenage Riot was kind of um, conceived as an anti-fascist project. Is your music today motivated by a single cause in that way? <laughs> I've done so many different things. Uh, it would be kind of stupid to say You know, it's, it's like a dogma and I apply it to everything. I mean, for a Titanic writer, kind of still is the kind of rule that, that every record we make, like, needs that. Not a political message in that sense, but it needs to deal with those topics. But there's so many, much instrumental stuff I've done. I mean, all the, you know, like a record, for example, like Low on Ice, you know, which is this... Uh, ambient album I did on your Plateau Records in 1995, and it's... I just uh, played it live for the first time at CTM in January at Berghain. Uh, 
And some people come up to me and say, this is really political because there's all this acceleration and you're really going against that because it's so slow and really anti-thing. <laughs> you know, it's the, the opposite of EDM. And, you know, and I was like, okay, I mean, you can in a way find a lot of <laughs> those meanings in the music, but... At the time, I mean, maybe there is kind of true because I did it in Iceland in a tent, very isolated. And I think maybe although we are all connected through social media and stuff, more and more people maybe start to feel kind of isolated and all this, you know. So, yeah, sometimes things become almost like a political thing without, you know, having the intention to do so so it's um, it's it's often also what can people get out of the music you know like what does it mean in that moment to them so yeah i wouldn't say like everything is super political i do but i'm still a very political person so and i think it's really important that everyone pays attention to what's going on because very often people like us become the victims <laughs> of certain politics you know it's so Yeah, and, and if that means just, oh, I can't get a job, you know, why is that? Am I a loser? Am I a fool? Like, what happened? You know, it's like people need to understand they are part of a big kind of system. And, and if, if you always blame yourself for that, I mean, you can't always just blame the system for everything that goes wrong, but you need to be aware of that to kind of, you know, exist in this without going completely crazy. <laughs> Is that maybe um, part of the purpose that political music can serve to just kind of nudge people to try to be aware of that kind of thing? Yeah, I think, I mean, I see it like musicians are like everyone else. They should express how they feel or what they think. And that can help other people. I mean, I had so much feedback over, you know, like two decades where people said, I don't know, I'm, I live in, in Texas and I'm gay and I'm, I'm the only one and I get beaten all the time and your music gives me hope. Or like other like political activists who, who told me they were singing the songs after approaches that when they got arrested and they spent a night in prison or something and then... Uh, We're like, okay, you know, we don't give up and stuff. And then there's also that hacker world, you know, where I get a lot of feedback from where people say, look, I've heard a Thai teenage riot and I understood I can use the computer as a, I wouldn't say as a weapon, but you can make a lot of stuff happen. And I think this is great, you know. I mean, of course, there is, is the audience that just, I don't know, maybe likes to take drugs and listens to the stuff for a little while and maybe has no effect on them. <laughs> Even though I have to say, I always believe that once the stuff goes through your brain, <laughs> the music it's in there. The yes, drugs. exactly. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's what I meant. The frequencies. No, because I think everything has a consequence. Like any movie you watch, any game you play, any book you read, it's kind of stored in there. So it's should be a decision a conscious decision what you let into your mind you know in your um creative process do you feel like production versus politics are they separate things or is it hard to tell like where one ends and the other begins the thing is i mean i come kind of from that kind of cyberpunk uh, early hacker 
kind of ideology where you just or philosophy or whatever you want to call it it's like you try to i think merge with the machines as much as you can so and i think that's when really interesting things are happening and and usually that's the case when you know your gear inside out and you don't have to always think oh what's that button doing oh i have to click on this or you know like and i think once you get to that point you can express stuff that is very kind of hidden i see the parallel to jazz maybe i know people made that comparison in the past but there's some truth to that like when you don't have to kind of think i mean about any move you make like or any i mean that you can tap into something deeper with the music like while you're in the studio and the, what's important to understand about electronic music is we all use the studio as an instrument you know it's i think when you talk to a traditional musician they go like yeah but do you play the guitar or do you play this and that it's like it, it's a different process you have to sit down and you you control so much stuff it's not really about okay i can play the keyboard uh, in that way really fast you know it, it's not about that you know it's it's almost like the line between the composer, the producer, the musician, and all these things has blurred, you know, in such a way that it's um, how the future musician, in my opinion, should be. And then, of course, how you feel about politics or your personal life or something, it's very easy to express. You know, you don't have to go to university and study classical music for, I don't know, a decade and then maybe get to that point. 40 and then 50 people recognize what you, <laughs> you know it's like I, mean, I think the technology can help us to to get to the point like much faster and this is how i understand it it shouldn't be a, a tool like to make us more lazy <laughs> you know it should be we should just connect with it more and but i think a lot of people look at it like that I, I'm, I'm not hopeless uh, so so technology can be kind of a democratizing force in that sense. Yeah, that that was always my hope. Like in every decade, I have that hope. But uh, once you're on YouTube, uh, <laughs> you wonder if, if if this will ever work. You know, it's like um, what we need is we need to find like really great musicians amongst you know like millions and millions of people and therefore it's a good thing i mean people say yeah it's there's so much bad music now everyone just uploads it to the internet and it's really hard to find good stuff but the thing is this i mean <laughs> decades earlier it was like you had to really get signed to a label and then the question was was that a and r making the right choice and you know and we don't know who we lost you know and in that process maybe there were way better musicians out there that were just not seen you know and yeah I've, i think it's good of course we need to kind of filter the bad stuff but you know that's where music journalists come in <laughs> No, but I really believe in that force, you know, that it should be um, music journalism also needs to kind of adapt and change because like the role of the 
the real critic is more needed than ever, you know, but there is that thing where, where the print media is losing more and more readers and people go, oh yeah, well, let the intern write the re review or whatever. And it, it, I hope that at some point it, you know, people would, would just write in a different way about music because I think it's needed. Like if you have people just watching a YouTube clip and they don't have the additional information and the context and, and stuff, there's so many misunderstandings. It's horrible, I think. You know, what some people think, that they leave the comments and you go, I don't even know where to start. Like, you don't know about this, you don't know about that. And then still you are the big judge. You know, knock something. And it's basically because you, you're kind of stupid. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, like, this shouldn't. And I think that's why uh, music journalists are really important. And they, I hope for that there's going to be a new generation of, of real like critics who, who are real writers and um, because I also think as musicians we need that you know like if you just I mean the main thing about the internet is always okay artists can connect with the fans right I mean that's always the thing but it's also a dangerous connection <laughs> sometimes because you know I mean I can say it from my own experience I mean sometimes there are misunderstandings where I go uh, no I mean I can clear them up at least now better than, than 20 years ago but uh, it's yeah it, it, it's just important to rethink a lot of these yeah the, the parts of the music industry almost like the way they used to be um, some of them just don't work anymore and um yeah, they have to be rethought and, and replanned and, and, yeah, redone or reinvented, you know. Uh, you mentioned hackers a few times. Do you feel like a personal kinship with the hacker movement, hacking as an activity? Yes, yeah, of course. Like, we, we came from that. I mean, also, this happened because... At the time, everything was, like, much smaller. You know, like, it was a smaller scene and... The thing was, if somebody wrote like an early, uh, I don't know, music software or something, uh, the chance was that they were part of the hacker scene kind of was like very high. <laughs> so it, it was also because many of these people listened to electronic music, of course, because it, it was part of a lifestyle. You know, everybody wanted that, I don't know, to, to be in this neuromancer world kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know Timothy Leary and in cyberspace and all that stuff. It felt re like a really good alternative to the to the boring reality. So yeah, and I think um, this also is is a link to the modular scene because I think people shouldn't look at music instruments as like a fetish thing like you, this is the 303 or the 909 drum machine and this is how it must be used like people need to understand well you can just open the machine up you can maybe apply some changes make it your own this is really hacker thinking and that's of course my criticism to like the iPads and, and all that stuff where it feels like people are being reduced to these consumers again and it's getting harder and harder to um, use them in a different way, you know. So the modular scene is, is, is a really good, good alternative because, yeah, these people think almost like hackers. I think. <laughs>